Thank you. Let's open our Bibles, please, to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I've been thinking about misnomers this week, misnamed things. And what got me thinking about that was newborn diapers. They don't fit all newborns, especially not behemoths like our little man Malachi. (laughs) 10 pounds, 15 ounces. Nearly a record. You know, it's like catching fish. I asked the doctor, what's the biggest baby you've ever delivered? He said 13. 13 pounds. So we're we're in record territory here. Kind of a tradition to use my children for sermon illustrations. So I figured on his first week of birth, I might as well get him in here. But a lot of other things are misnamed. A driveway is for parking, and a parkway is for driving. Chinese checkers aren't from China. They're from Germany. Did you know that? Greenland really isn't green. Fireflies are not flies, but beetles, although they do fly. Pencil lead is made of graphite and clay. Guinea pigs are not pigs, nor are they from Guinea. Grape nuts have nothing to do with grapes or nuts. And the triumphal entry of Christ is not about the triumph of Christ. We, the episode that we're going to look at in the life of Christ today is, all, is referred to as the triumphal entry of Christ. He rides into the Jerusalem to the adoring crowds, but... I think that the image that that name has created in our minds is something like a ticker tape parade. Sort of like, here's Jesus coming into town and all everybody's going, oh, hail King Jesus. But it's really not a time of triumph as we'll see today. And obviously we know it wasn't, at best it was a short-lived triumph because six days later they shouted crucify him. It wasn't a ticker tape parade congratulating on him being the Messiah. So what was it? What was this triumphal entry of Christ? Look with me at John chapter 12. And please follow as I read from verses 12 through 19. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, that's the Passover feast in Jerusalem, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, those people bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, riding on a colt, 
as it is written. And the place that it is written was in Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah, the prophet, wrote to the Jews who had returned from captivity in Babylon. Now, if, if, if your Old Testament chronology is a little fuzzy, let me help you remember. The, the Jewish people, the people of God, kept sinning against God so much that there came a day when God allowed them to be taken captive by the people of Babylon, which country today is modern Iraq. Those people came and uh, ruined the city of Jerusalem and took the people captive in two different groups, two different nations but the same area here, took them captive where they were for years. After 70 years, they were allowed to come back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, and reinstitute the worship of God. Zechariah is writing to these people who have come back and need to finish the work that they've started of rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the temple. Now there's a significance to that for what happens here with Jesus. Besides the significance of the fact that this prophecy was written several hundred years before Jesus did it, there is another aspect that's important. During this time in Israel, when Zechariah writes, they don't have a king. They have a governor who is assigned by the, by the, the nation of Babylon. He is a, a, we would call him a puppet leader. He is responsible to Babylon, and he rules as a, as a governor or a... Uh, you know, a municipal agent, but he's not the king of Israel. And so Zechariah writes to the people of God and says, your king is going to come. And he's going to come sitting on a donkey. He's going to be humble. And he's going to be coming into town. Now, this was written several hundred years, probably in the neighborhood of 400 to 500 years before Jesus actually did it. And between the time it was written and the time Jesus did it, there were no kings of Israel. There never was a king because Israel was essentially always dominated by another world power who had a puppet leader in place. There was a short period of time where they were free from that, but they never had a king. And so here's Zechariah, one of the last Old Testament prophets. He says, hey folks, a king is going to come, and here's how you'll recognize him. He'll ride into town on a donkey. Now, there, there's significance in all of these things. Did the kings in the Old Testament usually ride donkeys? Okay, no, they rode horses. You know, it, it's a man of war thing. I mean, if it was today, he'd come into town on a Hummer. You know, standing up through the moonroof, you know, like Patton in a tank or what have you. Um, you don't come on a donkey. Not only a donkey, but a, a little one. The foal of a donkey. In other words, this is, this is one still attached to its mama. And of course, I think there's a little miracle in there as well. One of the other gospel writers says nobody had ever sat on this particular one. I've ridden a couple of horses who had been sat on by a lot of people, and they were still hard to get along with. You know what I'm saying? So there's a miracle there. 
They bring him along, Jesus gets on him and rides, and he does not get bucked off. There's a miracle in that. But there's also the miracle of fulfilling this prophecy, and as he comes in, some of those people must have gone, hey, we've been waiting for a king. This must be him. There was an anticipation of a king for 400 or more years. And so they had been living under these foreign powers, under different foreign powers, and, and they're wanting to, oh, to throw off the foreign power and be their own nation and have their own king. And the desire for a king flows out of that. And the desire for the king is seen here in the way they talked to Jesus. Look with me again at verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard Jesus was coming, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, Jesus had been all over Israel. People knew of him. They talked about whether or not he might be the Messiah, the prophet that was to come, the king that was to come. And so when they heard him coming, and they said, hey, he's coming, riding on a donkey, they went out and got palm branches. Now, we, we need to understand that uh, this palm branch was a, a symbol of national power. Um, and what they did with it was not to wave them in some kind of a, you know, a, you know, a high five or what have you. They put them on the, on the ground. A very great multitude spread their clothes on the ground. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. They paved the road with palm branches. Uh, anytime you move up from dirt to a better substance, there's an honor there. And so they said, here, here, the king is coming. He can't just walk on the dirt. And so they took down palm branches and put them there and put their clothes down there so he could walk on some, or he could ride on something other than the dirt. The palm branches, though, have a significance for the people of Israel. And doing some historical research, we find this, uh, quoting from the author Bruce, F.F. F. Bruce. From the time of the Maccabees, that's around 141 B.C., when Simon Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem, palms or palm branches had been used as a national symbol. So well established was the use of the palm or the palm branch as a symbol for the Jewish nation that the Romans used it on coins which they struck to celebrate the crushing of the Jewish revolts. On this occasion then, the palm branches may have signified the people's expectation of imminent national liberation. And this is supported by the words which they used. See, they not only used a, a symbol of national power, they spoke about Jesus as a king and in a unique way. Look what they said. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. We don't, there's something here from the Old Testament that we don't readily recognize. And Adam Clark sums it up well when he says this. When persons applied to the king for help or for a redress of grievances, they use the word Hosanna, which is a term from the Hebrew Hoshia na, or save now. Save, we beseech thee. Redress our grievances. Give us help from oppression. Thus, both the words and the actions of the people prove that they were acknowledging Christ as a king and they were looking to him from deliverance. 
No doubt the use of this word Hosanna comes back somewhat from this Psalm 118. I will praise you for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. That's the word. Hosanna. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This was a psalm that would have been sung. Uh, This was the hymn book of, of the Jewish people. And so they knew these words and they knew this this way of calling out to the king. And so they, here comes a guy who they think is going to be the king, and they're going, okay, be the king. Rise up and throw off our oppressors. Save us now. They were not saying save us like give us eternal salvation from our sins. They were saying save us from, from this oppression we're under with the Roman government. They were talking about Jesus as one would talk about a political king. And how did Jesus come to them? How did he present himself as a king? Well, first of all, he presented himself knowingly. What do I mean by that? Uh, Verse 12 again says, When they had heard that he was coming to Jerusalem... Look at the scripture from Luke that tells me he knew exactly what was going to happen. And of course, we know that he knew what was going to happen because he was God. But look what he says to the disciples. He took the 12 aside and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man, that's how he talked about himself. He called himself the Son of Man. That's how the things concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge or whip him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, Jesus told this, and if you follow Luke's narrative, the very next chapter is when he comes to this episode of riding into town. Jesus told them, Hey, this is what's going to happen. Increasingly, during the three years of Christ's ministry, he had enemies who wanted to arrest him and kill him. And several times they tried to arrest him. And what does the scripture say? Every time it says he went away because his hour had not yet come. Now what does he do? Now he he rides into Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey. He goes in willingly, knowingly, knowing what is going to happen. This is no accident. All of these things were understood by God. This, This is the beginning of the events that we commonly refer to as the Passion of Christ or the Passion Week of Christ. He willingly set in motion the events that led to his crucifixion. You remember the Jewish authorities were looking for him. In fact, so much so that they said, I wonder if he'll come to this Passover. You see, every male who lived within a certain distance was required by law to come to the Passover. They said, I wonder if he'll come to the Passover. Because they were ready to arrest him. He could have stayed away. But he willingly, knowingly came and set in motion the events that led to the crucifixion. He came knowingly. Listen to this account from Luke. 
Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. You've seen how the kingdom, or excuse me, the, the, the new Seahawks Stadium quest field sounds on game day. It was like that, only there could have been, you know, two or three times the people easily shouting, Hosanna, and so on. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. And some of the Pharisees, these are the people that didn't like Jesus, they called out from the crowd saying, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop that. He answered and said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, does that mean everything is triumphant? No, because Jesus knows full well that that this is part of God's plan, but the end of this triumphal entry, quote-unquote, is going to result in those same Pharisees getting a hold of him and crucifying him. He knew exactly what he was doing. Earlier in ministry, some people wanted to make him king, the scripture says, by force. They wanted to create a scene like this and lift him up and say, he is our king. And he said, no, no, he walked away from that. But now he lets them. He knows what is about to happen. But it's not just that he knows what was going to happen. Jesus presents himself, and he does so with sadness. Again from Luke, listen to this part of the story. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation." Jesus came, but he came sadly because they didn't recognize him. The people wanted a political king. Now let me put this in terms you can grasp, because some of you have been sitting here thinking, okay, Dave, where are you going with this gigantic introduction to a sermon? Where's the sermon? Here it is. The people wanted a political king. Let me put it in terms you can get a hold of. They wanted increased physical Freedom and comfort. They wanted the right of self-direction as a nation. If that was what Jesus was bringing, they were for it. Come on, Jesus, throw off these Romans. Let us be free and do our own thing again. Hosanna to that king. The reason was Jesus was sad, the reason he was sad was this. They didn't want a spiritual king. They didn't see a need or have a desire for inner transformation, personal change. And this is really highlighted from an earlier uh, episode in John, John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was typical of the rulers of the day. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs or the miracles you do unless God is with him. Right up front, he says, look, you've got to be a prophet of God. 
Just got to be. Nobody else could possibly do what you're doing. Jesus answered and said to him, what did he say right up front? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right up front, he says, now listen, Nicodemus, I'm going to tell you the heart of the matter. He didn't say up front, look, I'm coming and I'm going to throw off Rome. You are, you are going to see warfare like you have never seen it. And you all are going to be free to keep right on doing exactly what you're doing. No, he said, what you're doing is wrong. It needs to be changed. You need to be born again. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Later in the passage, he says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Those words clearly to the Jews meant crucifixion. Doesn't mean that to us, but it was their common word to refer to crucifixion where you're lifted up off the earth. Unless the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, ever, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the kind of kingship Jesus was offering. That's the kind of kingship the people needed, but it's not the kind of kingship they wanted. They wanted a savior, a deliverer, who would help them out, who would make their life better according to their own designs. And Jesus said, that's not what I'm here to offer. If you're an astute observer of the Christian world, you know that that is exactly the conflict we are in in the Christian world today. Is, are we going to preach the Jesus in your image or the Jesus in his own image? Are you going to come to church and hear people say, look, God wants to do whatever you want him to do for you, whatever you need. You just name it and claim it and God has to do it and he'll fix your life. Or is it, <clears throat> is it the Jesus who says, look, you've got a problem, and it's called sin. And that sin is going to keep you out of heaven when you die, and it's going to mess up your life right now. And what you need is to be born again. I have come to provide this for you. It is a free gift. You don't have to crawl down the aisle. You don't have to pay a large sum of money. You don't have to do some magnificent work for mankind. But if you do not deal with this sin issue by coming to faith in me as the Savior who was lifted up on the cross, your life will never change. Jesus was sad because he came and for three years over and over told these people what they really needed, but all they wanted was a king who would throw off their physical oppressors. question that I, that I ask you today is, what kind of savior are you looking for? One who delivers you from all your problems and makes your life comfortable? Maybe a king like the one who called Lazarus back to life. Man, that's the kind of king I want. Keep me alive. I don't ever want to die. Just call me back to life. These people had heard Jesus say these very truths. 
And yet, they, it, it's sort of like they put them out of their mind or they refused to let them in or they blocked them out. And so there was a willfulness in their misunderstanding. Feed the 5,000? Great! Ask me to Jesus alone? Not so great. Take me to heaven when I die? Great! Ask me to believe in Jesus only? To get to heaven when I die? Not so great. They wanted him to fit into their mold just as we, to, we do today. Maybe you have, like I, wondered, how can these people say, Hosanna to the king of Israel one day, and six days later say, crucify him? And we think, how in the world could they get there from six days apart? You know how it is? Because Jesus didn't do what they thought he was going to do. He came riding in on the donkey, and they're going, great, here comes the king. It's going to be great. Remember, Zechariah said, this is how he's going to come. And what they expected next was something like him riding into town and going up to the Roman general and going, I'm here to be the king now. You get out of town. And if the Roman general or the Roman governor wouldn't leave town, then we're going to have a little fight. And I'm going to lead my people, and we're going to throw you off. And Jesus didn't do that, did he? He came into town, and the next thing you know, a couple days later, he's arrested. And he's getting whipped and scourged, and these people are going, what in the world? This guy's not the king of Israel. This guy's just some stupid imposter. And so then they were, they were as angry with him as they were happy with him before because he let them down. He didn't do what they wanted, and so now they're angry with him. Have you ever met anybody like that? You see, that's still going on today. People want Jesus if Jesus will do what they want him to do. They want a higher power as they know him or as they draw him in a picture. Say, this is what the higher power is like. But when the higher power comes along and says, no, they're mad at him and say, I don't want anything to do with him. And the problem is, they haven't known Jesus for who he really is and for what he really can do. Now, there's a great, there's kind of an irony here, and there's also a promise and a blessing. Look at, look at, uh, look at verse 15, or verse 14. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. Now, the scripture does not seem to be written in such a way as to tell me that he actually said these words. But it seems to be that those are the words said of him and the spirit in which he comes living this out. Fear not, your king is coming. They had just said, help me! And he says, I'm coming! But again, the problem is they don't want the help he's going to give. You, you know the old story about the guy trapped in a flood on the roof. And he says, oh, God, help me. And pretty soon some 
People come along in a fire truck and he says, no, no, I don't want that. God's going to help me. Pretty soon somebody comes along in a boat. No, nah, I don't want that. God's going to help me. Pretty soon the helicopter comes along and says, come on, take this rope. We're going to get you out of here. No, God's going to help me. And he's looking up to heaven saying, why won't you help me? And he says, I sent a fire truck, a, a boat, and a helicopter. See, do you want God's help or how you will define God's help? Do you want salvation on your terms or on God's terms? The wonderful thing, the thing that I can't fathom, is why wouldn't you want salvation on God's terms? All it requires is humility. The humility to say, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Jesus is the Son of God who took on human flesh and died and shed his blood so that God could punish him for my sin. I don't have to be punished for it. I don't have to earn God's favor. I don't have to do something great. Jesus did something to take God's wrath, and now all he asks of me is to believe in who he was and what he did. The great news is our king did come. Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. They were calling for deliverance by a king. Now get this, they got it. They just didn't get the deliverance they thought they needed. How have you responded to the kingship of Jesus? Have you embraced him? Have you let him into your life? The book of Revelation says this, quotes Jesus as saying this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and have fellowship with him and he with me. How does God knock on your door? He does it through his word, through Christians, like he's doing it right now. He's doing it through me, saying, you know what? God wants in, and he wants to take away your sin and put in a life of righteousness and guide you in your life and take you to heaven when you die. But you have to open the door by believing by receiving Christ as your Savior. As a Christian, you have to continue to embrace the kingship of Jesus. When he comes along and says, look, Christian, here's, how, here's the way to live. Here's the way to go. Follow this path. You have to choose whether you're going to follow that or not. You can choose not to follow that, but when you do, you're living in your own strength. When you choose to say, I will submit to the kingship of Christ, then he comes and he helps and he delivers in his way and in his time. Heavenly Father, boy, we want to be the kings of our own lives, the queens of our own lives. Pride and arrogance and self-determination are, are built in us and they're taught to us by our society. And it is so hard for us to lay down our lives and, and embrace our Savior as King, as Lord. Father, help us to do that today. Make your word clear in our lives. Help us to see where we are and where we aren't following you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.